Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Shell Shock. The focus of this episode will be cults and new religious movements. We'll be discussing a new HBO documentary about Scientology called Going Clear. And later we'll have an interview with Dr. Patrick O'Reilly, a psychologist who writes about the techniques that cults and other groups use to gain and keep adherence. We'll also have a science report about cognitive dissonance and the role it plays in people's decisions to stay in unhealthy and even destructive situations. And at the end of the show, we'll have a good news segment about a woman named Sabrina Tetzner, a former member of a Mormon sect calling itself the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints and her attempts to regain custody of her children from that group. So get ready, get comfortable, or get drunk, or any combination of those, and brace yourselves for Shell Shocked. Welcome to Shell Shocked. Our regular listeners may recall that at the end of the last episode I mentioned there would be a major change to the format of the show. Well, I have some bad news, and I have some good news. The bad news is that my co-host, Amanda DeVow, has informed me that she will not be able to continue with the podcast. Her work and other responsibilities are just too time-consuming for her right now, and she's decided to leave the show. The good news is twofold. Number one, Amanda won't completely leave us. She's agreed to be our Aussie correspondent, and to check in from time to time and let us know what's going on with the Australian skeptics and maybe do a good news or other segment. The other good news is that I've found a new co-host in the form of my friend and colleague Marilyn Cologne and she's here with me to introduce herself. Marilyn is a long-time skeptic. She obtained her PhD in psychology and specializes in applied behavior analysis. She's an adjunct instructor at CSU East Bay and has been there since 2010. And more recently, she's been teaching at my own college, Ohlone Community College, since about 2014. Marilyn, welcome to Shell Shocked. Hi, Sheldon and Shell Shocked listeners. Thank you for the kind welcome. And I'm very excited to be here. I have some big shoes to fill. So, Amanda, I hope I do you proud. <laughs> I'm sure you will. This week's topic is cults and new religious movements, and not by coincidence, we're recording this only a week or so after HBO bravely aired Going Clear, a two-hour documentary on the Church of Scientology, which is making big waves in the skeptic community and in society at large, frankly. So, Marilyn, I know you saw this documentary. What did you think of it? What was your reaction? Well, my first reaction is that everybody needs to go out there and watch the documentary. It's... Uh it's a must-see. Um, and uh, my reaction afterwards was anger. You know, wow. it's just uh, impassioned anger that people don't know um, the real face of Scientology, what's behind all of that. I've known about it for some time. I'm sure you have, too. And, and we have sort of a special connection to it, being involved in teaching psychology. And that's because it actually began in its professional form as a kind of replacement for psychotherapy. Yeah, I totally saw all, you know, um, there's a part where they ask, actually asked Hubbard, you know, this all sounds like psychology or psychiatry. And he just kind of waves it off. He's like, oh, don't put us with those people. But he doesn't say why or anything. And, it, and I was like, yeah, he just rebranded, you know, talk therapy um, and a lot of what he said into his, his own theology. Right. It, it makes sense to me, in my opinion, uh, the sort of old, stilted, stuffy Freudian psychology was still dominating in the 1950s and early 60s. And there, this was a time when fresh ideas were applauded and welcomed by society. And some of those were things like, you know, Carl Rogers coming along and, and creating a new, fresher, updated version of psychotherapy and psychology. But also we had little cults and little religious groups and little pretend groups. And I think Scientology was just another one of those, and it happened to get lucky and it caught on. Yeah, also, um, one of the things that I noticed is there's a clip where John Travolta says that this is the only... Um, religion that where joy is the operative concept and I was thinking yeah. no it's not you know there is um, psychology um, humanism uh, and and so it's like 
you're not the only one so I see what you know this this whole rebranding of of the new stuff and I always tell my students um, the common person out in the street has psychology stuck back in still in the Freudian days and we've moved so much past that so I can see how Hubbard you know introducing all this new stuff made it sound new when it really wasn't um, to the psychologist but to most people um, they hadn't heard all this, you know, new information. Yeah, if, if people aren't aware, if they haven't seen the documentary or don't know much about Scientology, uh, the first thing I would do is tell you that you should visit a website, xenu.net, X-E-N-U dot net. That's been around for quite a while, since I think the mid-1990s, so practically since the birth of the Internet, and they have a huge treasure trove of information, scanned documents. They also have a radio and TV archive with... 60 Minutes and 2020 and Oprah Winfrey shows or Barbara Walters interviewing people going back decades. And the second thing that I would do is just sort of sum up Scientology. Uh, apparently they believe that uh, uh, there's some kind of science fiction story behind it that you don't find out until much later once you're well within the organization and committed to it. But we all have the souls of previous beings and they get stuck in us and the idea is to go through Scientology and get audited which is a whole process unto itself uh, which reminds me of psychotherapy in some ways I think there's some placebo effect that goes on there when people believe that they're clearing themselves of these strange thetans and engrams and things that are stuck to them and then uh, supposedly the technology will clear your reactive mind of all of these memories of traumatic events of your own and of the little souls that are attached to your soul and allow your logical mind to function more appropriately so auditing supposedly allows people to relieve themselves of the engrams and uh, the documentary participants claim that Scientologists during these sessions um, allow you to and encourage you to relive traumatic experiences from your own life but they keep detailed records of these so the spookiest part of the documentary for me was that people who have left the church and especially if they speak out against the church soon find themselves in a position of having all of those secrets that they divulge during these so-called therapeutic sessions to embarrass them, to shame them into silence, and that's the part that terrified me. Yeah, uh, came back to all you know, Elizabeth Loftus research on false memories. Yeah, here you know they're implanting false memories into people. Um, like you said, at first it's yeah, it's good catharsis, I guess, to talk about traumatic events that have happened to you, so you can get them off your chest, so to speak. But then to say, you know, now you have all these other lives that, you know, the souls inside you have lived and you have to throw out their memories as well. And so now you're implanting false memories in people and encouraging them to have these. And like you said, then now they have dirty laundry on you that they can use if you try to leave along with uh, that billion year contract that you sign. <laughs> billion years, can you imagine? I mean, no, it's I laughable, can't. but at the same time, you know, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson recently came out, and I think he was wrong in one way and right in another, but he was saying, you know, people from other religions, Christians or what have you, they look at Scientology and they say, wow, look at those bizarre, crazy ideas, and then he pointed out, well, there's a lot of bizarre, crazy ideas in every religion, and I totally get that, but I think he missed the boat on the real difference between an organization like Scientology, at least according to this documentary, and say, let's say the Catholic Church. I've never heard of a person leaving the Catholic Church and being tracked down and hounded day after day, um, having you know Catholics come out and videotape their every movement or starting a website about them and calling them a child molester. I've never heard of anything like that. As much as you might say, well, you know, people still run the risk of losing their friends or family members or whatever, that's nothing in comparison to the accusation that some of these former Scientology members are making. Yeah, um, a lot of those uh, members are saying, you know, their families were forced to disconnect with them. 
and uh, which means you know they no longer will have anything to do with them. Um, there was one guy on there, Marty, I believe. His whole family has disconnected with him for coming out and being on this film, or you know, not just this film, but coming out and divulging all this information. Um, the poor guy has no one um, except his wife, um, and they've been hounded for five years. So terrible. yeah, very terrible. There was a woman too, and I, I apologize, I've forgotten her name. She was part of the Sea Org, which is just like it sounds, it's part of a Sea organization. They started out apparently because the IRS was hounding uh, L. Ron Hubbard for back taxes, and he uh, he took to a ship, and he needed uh, people to run the ship and clean it up and make it, you know, look nice and run correctly, etc. So they were given this so-called honor of becoming part of the sea organization and they did really menial labor i mean in the hot sun with apparently just substandard conditions all around and this woman had been in the organization for something like 20 years and now she's out of it but she was saying that she reached a certain level where she was being told you need to audit yourself and you need to get yourself to a position where you can move on to the next level of consciousness or what have you and she just was never able to do that she couldn't do the things they were asking her to do and she said I look back on it now and I realized that I was clinically depressed I was actually going through a really dangerous state of mind and became suicidal and I thought god there's the danger too just like you know when we look at things like gay conversion therapy a lot of times people say well these are silly things they go through and and they're ineffective so what's the harm well the harm is that you're telling people that they can do something that it's impossible to do like clearing yourself of non-existent body thetans and when she couldn't do this and L. Ron kept hounding her. She blamed herself, of course. She didn't blame Scientology. She didn't wake up to L. Ron Hubbard's charlatanism. According to her, she blamed herself, and she turned all that failure inward, and that's the real danger, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of um, manipulation and uh, mind control that went on with all of these people. There's one part where they, uh, the higher-level executives get thrown into this prison which they call the hole yeah. and um, they let some of them out to, uh, to go on to Anderson Cooper and um, they they say all the um, people who are saying they've been abused are lying and then they took them back and put them in this prison camp and they said people were fighting to stay in this prison it was crazy crazy and and they were physically harmed not just psychological torture but physically harmed as well it's just half of me wants to say what is wrong with these people how dumb are you how how much self-hatred do you have but of course I also realize that there's a process to this they don't start out with the the evil planetary interplanetary overlord story they you have to build up to that and so I think what L. Ron Hubbard was able to do, at least according to this documentary, was tap into some of the psychological processes that cult leaders use to inculcate people, to get them to just join the organization, and also to little by little lead them into the crazy. And then once you're there, you have so much vested in this that pure cognitive dissonance will keep you there no matter what. Uh, one of the other things that I, I found really sick also, you know, talking about the dangers of this, was, you know, you could tell Hubbard didn't really like children. And so the Sea Org members, when they had kids, they had to put them in a, a cadet org. And the children were um, sick and they were uh, in cribs with that were urine-soaked. Um, you know, they just weren't treated well. And I, I also oh. found it appalling when they talk about in the film how um, when they wanted to break up Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, um, they wanted to turn her adopted children against their mother. Uh, uh, that's, uh, that's where I was like, oh my yeah. gosh, that's just, just a sick. And, and when, 
they talk to some of the other people who say that they went to collect their children and they found them in these terrible conditions. You know, that's when it strikes you that, wow, even that strong evolutionary, I will kill you if you harm my child bond that parents should have with their kids was so overwhelmed by the belief system that they were stuck in that they were willing to turn their children over to this, this, I hate to say it, but evil system and willing to subject them to this because, you know, they just thought it was the right thing to do, I guess. There's so much for me to scratch my head over in this documentary. Like in Jim Jones' cult, they drank the Kool-Aid, right? And, and they didn't so, do that day one. They built up to it, right? So it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, and then you have things like cognitive dissonance, you know, so how uh -huh. can I be in this if I don't really believe in all this stuff? So there's a lot of psychological aspects of it that, you know, they, they used, um, whether they knew it or not, they, whether they knew the terms. Um, these uh, guys, especially Hubbard and Miscavige, the new uh, president of this company, um, just really went uh, all powerful and decided they were going to do whatever it took um, right. to be in control. Um, and I thought, I don't know, uh, you know, I'm not diagnosing Hubbard or Miscavige, but it really does seem like they have some kind of psychological disorders. I mean, they they were both very paranoid. Yeah, and, it's interesting you would say that because they showed in the documentary that um, in the 1940s, L. Ron Hubbard had written to the Veterans Association and asked for psychiatric help. Um, in fact, there's another man, um, Sarge Fouth is his name. He claimed that Hubbard was struggling with his sanity, I guess, um, over a particularly strong Phaeton that he said he couldn't get rid of, and he asked Sarge for help. So, in essence, according to this Sarge guy, Hubbard was asking him to kill him. This was a suicide mission. And they said, well, then what did you do? And he said, well, I wasn't willing to go that far, but I didn't want to say no to him. So I figured I'd just build a big Tesla coil and hook it up to the E-meter. And they said, what was the result of that? And he said, well, it exploded. It was a huge explosion, and it really scared the hell out of him. But uh, in the end, there was no harm to him. That's not a sane person. Yeah, I, uh, I, the guy who wrote the book, he, he believed um, that Hubbard really was a true believer in that this uh, Scientology was his self-therapy. He really thought that there was something wrong with him yeah. and that um, this was the way to cure himself. So um, I do think that he was aware of you know, that that he had some kind of problems, but I don't think that the new gentleman, Miscavige, would, would agree to that. I don't think he would say that, that he needs some kind of help. I'm sure not, no. The, the other really interesting thing to me is the the aftermath of this from Scientology. If you go to their website, it's um, uh, freedommag.org. Um, it's been around since the 1960s, originally as a print magazine, and now purely online, um, they have taken the time in very professional videos to slander, in my opinion, every single person who was in or helped create this documentary. A, a separate five to ten minute video for each and every person on their website. And what, the one, uh, Lawrence Wright, is the man who, who um, wrote the book that this was based on, and they say in the video about him, uh, they say, well, here's, here's the man that wrote this, and how can you trust this man when he was asked in an interview recently, do you believe that journalism can lead to truth? And his response was thus, truth is one of those subjective terms that are pointless to get too tied up about. That's as far as they take it in the video, though, as if to say, you see, this man isn't even concerned with truth. Actually, if they had told you the entire quote, what he went on to say was, truth has this absolute quality, and yet everybody hangs on to his own truth. A better word might be understanding. The whole point of a reporter is to sympathize with different perspectives, but I don't think sympathy leads to truth. 
For instance, in the recovered memory debate, there was more truth on the side of those who said this is a hysterical outbreak than on the side of those who said, no, these people are suffering from real memories and experiences. I felt obligated to report on what I believed while trying to understand both camps. I have great respect for that. That's a very different message than the one that the Scientology video was trying to put forth. Yeah, you're supposed to let people make up their own minds, not tell them what they should believe. Scientology has done a, a great job, unfortunately. They limit um, the amount of information that they get, and so they, they don't read any of the bad stuff. Um, don't read the internet, don't read these sites, um, because they're gonna be putting up lies. Yeah. There was the, that um, filmmaker, um, Haggis, I believe his name was, that said that he'd been in there for 30 years and he'd never read one bad thing about Scientology. And when he started um, to do that, he found all this information and that's when he said you know my eyes were really opened um, it, to what the Scientology Church believed in and one of the things that had happened was it, uh, two of his uh, daughters were gay and when he went back into the church doctrine you know they said that homosexuality was a perversion that you could get rid of with uh, you know with Scientology methods and uh, then his daughters told him that they'd been harassed for years and he had uh, you know yeah. whether he had chosen not to see that or they had kept that from him you know he they were very good at not allowing him to see everything that was out there just amazing well like we said uh, we strongly suggest that you go out there and and find a copy of this documentary and watch it I think it's extremely eye-opening all skeptics should see it certainly anyone involved in psychology should see it and I would hope that there are a lot of people who are involved in Scientology or were thinking about getting involved who will watch this first and allow themselves to become educated before they get involved in this thing some people have said that they think that this is the beginning of the end for Scientology so we'll see um, we shall see uh, yeah I can only hope so <laughs> yeah cheers to that well once again Marilyn welcome to the show I look forward to working with you and uh, on with the show thank you very much Sheldon I'm honored and I, I'm looking forward to it great On the line with me now is Dr. Patrick O'Reilly. He is a clinical psychologist and assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and also a lifelong skeptic. Patrick is also the author of a wonderful book called Undue Influence, Cons, Scams, and Mind Control. Welcome to Shell Shock, Patrick. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Helms. I'm delighted to be here. Sheldon, I'm sorry, we're friends. Okay. Yes. So as we discussed over email when I invited you to come on the show, uh, HBO recently aired a documentary called Going Clear about the so-called Church of Scientology. Have you seen that documentary? And I wonder what you think of it. Yes, I did see it. It was uh, remarkably brave of HBO because Scientology sues everybody. And what I... The information in there I really already knew. I was the uh, postdoctoral intern of uh, Dr. Margaret Singer, you know, who wrote Cults in Our Midst. So I was familiar with the information. But I think the most telling thing about this documentary is it has made Scientology a lot less scary for people to talk about now because people are afraid to speak. Uh, I've gone to two Commonwealth Club talks in San Francisco, one by an internationally famous skeptic, actually, and he started off his talk by saying, I am not going to talk about Scientology because I don't want to be sued. Well, I'm paraphrasing him. This was 10 years ago. Wow. Another, another local skeptic, uh, it must have been two years ago, and he started off his talk with pretty much the same thing, you know. Um, I find the organization vile, but I'm not going to comment on them because I don't want to be sued. So I think this documentary is going to make it a lot less scary for people to speak out about it. Yeah. I've noticed that several different terms are used by people when they talk about groups like Scientology or others, including religion, 
cult and new religious movement. Can yeah. you give us some idea about what those terms mean to social scientists? Are they synonyms or are they different in some ways? Oh, well, they are actually different. Uh, uh, a new religious mo- movement does not necessarily is not necessarily a cult at all. A, a new religious movement is uh, it's really uh, like a group that's of fairly recent origin and it's different from existing religions. It may have some components of uh, traditional religion in there, but it veers off pretty radically from from the from the source. So you might think of like probably the most popular, the one that did the best was the Church of Latter Day Saints, which is a Christian organization, but not accepted by Christianity for the most part. Now I think it's becoming more so because much of its dogma is totally different than traditional Christianity. So a new religious movement does not have to be a cult. It actually just has to be a fairly recent origin and different from existing religions. And what exactly is a cult? Well, a cult, interestingly, is a group, and it does not have to be a religion at all. Um, uh, it's a group where the, the leader of the, or, of the organization uses several techniques to... Uh, essentially to change people's way of thinking. The brainwashing is kind of a trite term that I would never use, but really a series of steps are set up in a, in a cult. Uh, and Margaret Singer, who is my good friend, sadly is no longer with us, um, she came up with six, six criteria for a cult. If you want, I can go over them very quickly. Sure. Well, first of all, when somebody joins, they're not aware of the changes that are expected of that person once he joins or she joins. Uh, somebody who joins goes, well, we'll use Scientology as a good example. If somebody goes in to get the, you know, takes the free personality test and goes in and <clears throat> gets the e-meter reading initially, is, has no, they're not telling the person what the theology is, what the person's expected to do if the person becomes really enveloped in the organization. So the, the initiate uh, is not aware of the changes that are going on. Um, cults tend to try to control the social and physical environments. Uh, we can use some more extreme cults, although God knows there's no shortage of, shortage of them around. So somebody like Charles Manson, for instance, he controlled everything about the organization. They end up living out in the country, no telephone access, uh, Members' driver's license were confiscated. You know, news, no newspapers. Jim Jones did essentially the same thing. It's really a group tries to control the social and physical environments of its of its followers, really, so they don't have any. There's no influence coming in from the outside, and they try to cr- create a sense of powerlessness as well. Um, I know you and I have discussed Jim Jones. You're very familiar with People's Temple in Jonestown. Uh, and they also manipulate a system of rewards and punishments that actually are set up to inhibit old behaviors. Uh, and then a system of rewards and punishments that reflect the, the group's, the group's belief system. And there's a very closed system of logic. There's no feedback is allowed. Uh, they try to minimize contact with your old social network, with your family, anybody who might conceivably question the group's purpose. Mm-hmm. Does that sum it up all right? Yeah, that's great. Okay. Uh, you had your own experience with um, one of these groups a while back. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that group and how you got involved with them while you were going through your education. Oh, sure. Well, I was very interested in cults and uh, more extreme religious, uh, religious, religious communities, and I I stumbled across this one. It's still around, incidentally. Uh, it's called the Spiritual Rights Foundation. Actually, they may have changed their name. That's not uncommon at all. And I did join it. I was not deceptive. My doctor committee would not allow me to be. And I, they, <clears throat> I actually had to sign a form stating that I was not a government agent, a reporter, and I would not hold them responsible for present or future medical problems. They were very big on psychic healing, for right. instance. And when I was asked why I was joining, I said I was doing doctoral research on alternative religious expression, which was technically true. Um, 
And so I went to their their classes and their meetings and their services. You know, it's a long time ago. It was at least six months. I uh, for at least six months I was there five to six nights a week for several hours. And what I was trying to find out was if there was some commonalities about them, if there was something that distinguished them from a more traditional religious community. And with the assistance of my doctor committee, we set up a you know, a demographic form, a series of 50 questions. And uh, and over the period of several months, I was able to ask um, a representative sample of this particular group all 50 questions. The difficulty I had is I was not allowed to come in there with any paper or pencil so, or a pen or anything. So during while I was there, I would chat with different members and I might subtly just ask him a question or two, and then I would remember who that person was, and when I got home, I would record his answers. It took at least six months for me to get all of the answers I needed. Wow. Some, of the, some of the commonalities, and you know what's interesting, Sheldon, is I really like these people. These were not weirdo people, like it's a slang term. It was nothing about any of them that would make you say, geez, I don't want to sit next to this person on the bus, you know. <laughs> I think I'll just stand. They were just regular folks. And they really believed the leader, who I think, frankly, was almost certainly a psychopath. uh, And he was very charismatic. I was always wary of talking to him personally because he was very smart and uh, charismatic. And and I was afraid he would actually figure me out and kick me out. And then I'd have to find another group and start all over again. And, (laughs) And, you know, from your own studies... Once you start the dissertation, you just want it over with, you know. Right. And some of the some, and then I I, I submitted the, the same demographic form to a a Presbyterian church, which I determined with the assistance of my committee was probably you know generically a mainstream church. Uh, and there were some notable differences. Um, this was years ago. Some of the differences I remember is the people in the cult. Uh, they tended to have educations, but they, their jobs did not meet their educations. In other words, they were really socioeconomically not as well off as their parents. They had degrees in English, for instance, which I do too, but of course, as you, I know, I've got other degrees as well. They had degrees in philosophy or English or something like that that's not really marketable. So they tended to be underemployed, overeducated. They'd had a lot of lifestyle changes. Uh, as as young people, in other words, they'd lived more alternative religious, I mean, alternative lifestyles, you know, and they were kind of seekers, really. They they stumbled into this group because they were looking for a spiritual community. It offered, you know, free psychic healings, free lectures. Um, the free was kind of a misnomer, really, because things were pretty expensive. It, and it was... Uh, a strange experience, and and towards the end of it, as my I had nearly all of my data, I and it could be my Irish Catholic background, but I started to feel guilty for being there that somehow I was deceiving these decent people. But what what I'll just say is a postscript. There was one particular member who was a school teacher, and I was very wary of him because he just was so intense and. I was trying to stay away from people who would figure me out, frankly. I hadn't technically lied when I got in there, but I didn't tell the people in there really what I was up to. And about six months after I left the group, I got a phone call from a friend of Margaret Singer's who was counseling ex-cult members, and she said, well, I've got this guy, Mason, and and he's just left this cult in Berkeley, and I recognize the name, and you studied it, and I wonder if you'd be willing to talk to him. And I talked to him, and I've talked to a few people since then who have gotten out. But here's an anecdote that'll sum it up. There was a retired, as a professor yourself, you'll appreciate that the California State University psychology professor was a member, and he was in his probably late 60s, and they were big believers in uh, Swedenborg, you know, the, the, the mystic who claimed that he he visited different countries to... Uh, you know, he could asteroid project, and he'd gone to the moon, and he'd gone to all the different planets, and that was part of this group's theology. And so one time he was giving me this 
psychic healing. Um, and I said, so everything Swedenborg wrote is correct. Is that, is that what you're saying? He goes, yeah, absolutely. And I said, I wonder why it was that Swedenborg only visited the planets that were known to exist at the time he was alive. So <laughs> it's like a, a reasonable question. That was the only time I ever, my skepticism got it in the way of my scholarship. Yeah. And he patted me on the shoulder. I still remember what he said. He said, Patrick, you're too cognitive. You just need to let go and learn to accept the things you can't understand. Wow. <laughs> I would say that sums up that group better than anything. Oh, the other thing is the leader actually has gone on to a higher plane is how they would word it. Oh. I would say he died. <laughs> yeah. And so he had two wives, one he'd married decades before, and then he married a younger woman who was the one who signed me into the church, um, coincidentally. And I thought when he died, it would be more interesting to study the group, although I wasn't going to do it, because I thought there would be a turf war between the two wives. But as it happens, they recognize they have a really good thing going, and they're sharing the power, and it continues to move along. So, so people often ask whether the leaders of these groups are always true believers or if they're just charlatans who are trying to take advantage of people. What's your take on that? Uh, I don't know that I can totally generalize. Um, a lot of them are pure charlatans. So if you think of Jim Jones, uh, People's Temple, Jonestown, mass murders in Guyana, he was an atheist his whole life, even though he he said that he was he preferred to be called Reverend Jim Jones, and he had this Christian community, and he and he presented himself as a social activist, Christian leader in the kind of in the mold of Martin Luther King, but he was an atheist his whole time. Jim Jones didn't believe anything. He was he just wanted power. Uh, Manson did I did Manson really think he was the son of God? No, he just had all these young damaged kids and <clears throat> and uh, he just told them what he thought they needed to hear to keep them under control. Right. Some of them probably believe it. Uh, a lot of them absolutely do not. A lot of people look at these new religious movements or cults and their beliefs and, you know, they involve magical thinking, sometimes UFOs or certainly divine revelations. And the general public just thinks that's so crazy that they can't imagine how the leaders of these movements get people to join and eventually believe these bizarre techniques. Uh, are there specific techniques that they use? Oh, well, a couple of things come to mind. I think if we look at it purely objectively, any spiritual belief system that isn't ours looks pretty silly. <laughs> right, know, yeah. Like that. So if you can separate, you can. If, if you look at it from that context, then you would have to say, well, is that any sillier than one of the main world religions? If you're an active member of that world religion, you would say, yes, of course, it's totally different. <laughs> but they tend to gravitate towards I mean, the people that tend to get enveloped in that are lonely people. They're looking for a sense of community. They're searchers. They may already have those beliefs. You know, you think of, I think of Fessinger's great book, you know, When Prophecy Fails, you know, about that flying saucer cult in Chicago in the early 50s. Who right. Well, the people of that were already experimenting with, I mean, they were already pretty much believers in UFOs, and they'd been, reading, they'd set up Dianetics clubs, this was before Scientology, so they were tended to, to find people who were already kind of leaning that way anyway, and, and for some of them, they were looking for a sense of community. I had, I had a friend who was actually a clinical psychologist who ended up joining a cult because she moved out to Berkeley and didn't know anybody really, this is before I knew her, and she was a meditator. She liked to meditate, and she found this place where they did free meditation classes, and she could go there a couple times a week and meditate with a group of people, a great way to meet people, and it, and she ended up getting totally sucked up into it. You know, they, I, I don't think they're going to, I don't think any of these groups are going to recruit you, Sheldon, okay? <laughs> I'm crossing my fingers. <laughs> well, if you have some beliefs in, in uh, telepathy and... And no. psychic power and UFOs, then, then you could be susceptible. <laughs> well, you know, it, uh, in episode one of Shell Shocked, I actually discussed uh, in the, 18, uh, the 1980s and 90s, I was very much caught up in the New Age movement and 
believed a lot of that stuff, and uh, it took a chance meeting with a book by James Randi and a lot of psychology classes to convince me otherwise. So, <laughs> you know, it, one of the things that I, I have to remind my students of, and I'm sure you do this too, is that you don't have to be a fool to be fooled. No, not at all. Remember the one guy who talked, who patted me on the shoulder about Swedenborg was a retired California State University psychology professor. So he certainly had the knowledge to figure out what was going on. And, but I think from his standpoint, he found a nice community and he was, oh, he said he'd always been kind of a spiritual yearner and he, he found a theology and a community that worked for him. I, I hope they didn't take too much of his money, <laughs> but yeah. that's up to him. But I also, Sheldon, when I grew up in the late 60s and early 70s, and I can remember sitting on the beach in Oregon with two other long-haired friends, and we were taking turns reading Be Here Now out loud. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say that. <laughs> now I wish I hadn't said that because you can't edit it out, but we did, you know. it was. <laughs> so uh, I was just very lucky that... Uh, I did not meet somebody who tried to recruit me. Maybe the person wouldn't have been able to, but certainly I was open to lots of new ideas that now, on reflection, I see as nonsensical, but I was 20 years old, so what can I say? Yeah, you know, the more we learn about this, the more we find out that we, we got lucky in a lot of ways. In your book, Undue Influence, you talk about the wider spectrum of psychological manipulation. Uh, this doesn't just apply to religious movements or cults. Um, it applies to a lot of different areas of life. Maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about those. <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, well, let's... I'll use a couple of big names, Charles Manson, because everybody knows who he is. Uh, you know, I did a presentation for your school on the on Manson, but I was visiting a, a, a professor friend in Buenos Aires this past summer, and she asked me to do a presentation at the University of Buenos Aires, and the room was full of of Argentinian psychology students. They all knew who Manson was. But uh, which really shocked me, frankly. I was really surprised. I expected five people. But Manson was a pimp. The the techniques that Manson uses used on his followers were not really any different than he than he used when he recruited runaway teenage girls at bus stations in the 1950s. The, the techniques are very very similar. And it's interesting because I went to one of those excellent skeptic talks, which I totally recommend to anybody uh, in January. And then I was chatting with a policeman from San Francisco who works with, uh, you know, uh, now I'm blanking out on the term, where these <clears throat> young foreign women, mostly from Asia, are really tricked into coming here and then they're trapped trapped into prostitution. And, and he was saying that what goes on with these young women is really not much different than what goes on with cults. The big thing going on now, and before Margaret Singer died, she was trying to look after me because I was her friend. She said, go into elder abuse, Patrick, because that's where the money is for you. <laughs> and because elder abuse has become a really big thing, and they're using very similar manipulative techniques to steal from the elderly. I, I can't even let a month go by, frankly, without seeing something in the newspaper or somebody just scammed an elder out of 15000 or 50000 or 100000 Sometimes it's the banker. Sometimes it's a gypsy fortune teller. Tragically, very often it's a relative. So elder abuse is very similar. Uh, you know, Margaret Singer, and I agreed with her. I keep mentioning her. But she referred to uh, abusive relationships as a cult of two. You know, and the oh. techniques that a, a, that the abusive spouse uses on the dominant one uses are very, very similar. They cut them off from outside communication. Uh, you know, they control every aspect of their lives, uh, and they demean them to the point where their self, you know, their self image is destroyed. They have no self confidence, uh, and they're. And they're convinced that they can't leave because if they leave, something bad will happen to them. Either the abusive spouse will track them down or else they're just too stupid and too homely and so worthless that they're just nobody's going to want them. I mean, that's not really dissimilar from what the cults do, actually. Right. Well, 
thank you so much for your time, and thanks for being here on Shellshocked with us, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Well, thank you, Sheldon, and I'm so delighted you're doing this. Um, and I, I want to say that your, your affiliation with various skeptics is absolutely wonderful. It's a vibrant organization, and that uh, has a lot to do with the immense amount of work you put into keeping it going. So thank you. Thank you. Sure. The Science Report. The topic this week cults and new religious movements is likely to elicit a number of reactions from listeners. But if you're like me, one of the most powerful is the question of why people would subject themselves to such abuses. I mean, as much as we try to prevent ourselves from blaming the victim, there's always a small voice in our head that says, good God, people, wake up and get out. Of course, even a cursory glance at the scientific literature puts a stop to all that. That's because there are measurable, proven psychological phenomena that account for much of the maladaptive behavior we see in adherence to these groups. Arguably the most instructive of all of these is termed cognitive dissonance, and it was first described in a book that's very familiar to those of us who study psychology. That book is When Prophecy Fails, a social and psychological study of a modern group that predicted the destruction of the world. It was written all the way back in 1956 by Leon Festinger with help from fellow psychologists Henry Rieker and Stanley Schachter. The history of cognitive dissonance theory is almost as interesting as the theory itself. The tale begins in the late 1950s when Festinger and his colleagues infiltrated a UFO cult led by Dorothy Martin, a Chicago housewife and former devotee of Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard. Martin claimed that she was using spirit writing to communicate with beings from another planet. According to her, these beings planned to visit the earth in a flying saucer and would save only the faithful group members from a horrific worldwide flood that would kill off all of humanity before dawn on December 21, 1954. The members of this group, who called themselves the Seekers, had left jobs, college, and spouses, and even given away money and possessions all to prepare themselves for their departure on a flying saucer. They had invested a lot, both financially and mentally, into this belief system, and I think anyone would be interested in how they'd react when the end didn't come. As you may have noticed, we're still here. I think lots of people would probably say that the failure of Martin's prediction would cause people to wake up and leave the group. But, as Festinger predicted, Although the end-of-the-world prophecy failed, the most faithful among them became even more committed to their leader and her teachings, because accepting the truth was simply too psychologically distressing. Now, to some, this defies reason. After such clear, demonstrable proof of their leader's failed predictions, why on earth would members stay? Festinger had an answer for this a phenomenon he termed cognitive dissonance. Dispelling a lot of the myths about so-called brainwashing, which assumes that others can directly change our cognitions, Festinger found that people engage in cognitive shifts designed to reduce the unpleasantness they experience when their cognitions contradict each other. These reactions create what he called cognitive dissonance, and will go to great lengths to avoid that feeling which can range from mild annoyance to mental torment. Festinger suggested three possible routes to reduction of the dissonance that creates this mental and emotional state. 1. Change the social environment that reinforces the dissonance. One of the reasons that followers agree to rules that cut them off from communication with outsiders is that people outside the group 
are constant challenges to their decision to follow the group. Thus, cutting off communication also helps them avoid dissonance. Unfortunately, it shuts off helpful messages that could potentially help them. 2. Change the behavior that creates the dissonance. This is a tough one, though, in that Dorothy Martin, like all cult leaders, made it clear that their very lives were at stake. As a result, the longer they stayed in the group and observed others being compliant, the less likely group members were to change their own behavior. And three, add new cognitions to reduce the dissonance. Interestingly, this is exactly what happened after the December 21st date came without incident. Martin later emerged to congratulate members of her group for saving the world through their faith and compliance. She acknowledged that the end of the world had not come, but she gave the credit to the group members. Thankfully, most of us will never join a cult, but we can all relate to holding some belief as a sacred cow about which we fail to think critically. Some of us might justify our cigarette smoking by stating that it prevents us from gaining an unhealthy amount of weight. Others might refuse to recycle, claiming that corporations and large factories pollute a lot more than we ever could as individuals. Still others might justify our religious beliefs in the face of absolute evidence that religious texts show no sign of divine inspiration, arguing that the books were written by fallible men who could have inserted their own ideas. As skeptics, everyday examples like these can help us begin a discussion with others that assist them in directly relating to people that might be perceived as foolish or gullible. Try to guide people towards seeing how petty and insignificant factual information might seem to believers when compared to things like the chance that they might lose important connections to family and friends, the idea that they have to accept the death of a loved one, or the idea that the future can be foreseen, or even the relatively mild notion that they've wasted their money or time on some useless product. And luckily, we also have a wealth of studies and books that are now available for us to use. As my colleague Carol Tavris and her co-author Elliot Aronson point out in their wonderful book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, Fessinger's theory has been incredibly fruitful, inspiring over 3,000 published experiments and revolutionizing our understanding of human psychology. Tavris and Aronson have followed in Fessinger's footsteps. They point out how cognitive dissonance affects a lot of facets of our daily lives, influencing politics, war, marriage, prejudice, science, and countless other areas. So I guess the main message here is, there but for the grace of, what, good luck? Chance? Go I. And also, don't be so quick to judge members of these groups so harshly. If there's one thing that I've learned by studying psychology, it's that more than we would like to think, our ability to avoid being scammed is just as likely to be coincidental as it is due to any purposeful decision on our part. Have you heard the good news? Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi everyone, this is Marilyn, and this is the Good News Report for this week. Today's story revolves around a brave 32-year-old woman named Sabrina Tetzner. Sabrina left the Colorado City, Arizona Fundamentalist Mormon sect, or okay, I'll say it, cult, headed by Warren Jeffs eight years ago and escaped from her abusive husband. Last week, a judge awarded her full custody of her four children, whom she had been forced to leave behind. When she arrived in Colorado City to pick up her children where they had been living, she faced a harrowing ordeal when hundreds of cult members, hell-bent on keeping the kids, showed up at the home and physically prevented her from collecting her children. I'll fill you in on how that story unfolded, but first, let's go over some background information. Like I said, Sabrina left the sect of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or FDLS Church for short, because the former name is a mouthful, eight years ago in 2009, about a year after the cult's leader, Warren Jeffs, 
the former president of the church, was arrested for organizing marriages between men in his cult and underage girls. Jeffs, as you may know, gained international notoriety in May 2006 when he was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution on Utah state charges related to this alleged arrangement of illegal marriages between his adult male followers and underage girls. He was arrested in August 2006 in Nevada and agreed to be taken to Utah for a trial. In May and July of 2007, Arizona charged him with eight additional counts in two separate cases, including incest and sexual conduct with minors. Jeff's Utah trial lasted less than a month, and on September 25, 2007, he was convicted of two counts of rape as an accomplice. On November 20, 2007, Jeffs was sentenced to imprisonment for 10 years to life and began serving his sentence in a Utah state prison. Unfortunately, the conviction was overturned by the Utah Supreme Court on July 27, 2010, due to incorrect jury instructions. I hate it when our rules apply to scumbags, too. Not to worry, though. Jeffs was extradited by Utah to Texas, where he was found guilty of sexual assault and aggravated sexual assault of children in connection with a raid outside of El Dorado, Texas. The ranch was raided in April 2008 when authorities believed children living there had been abused or were at immediate risk of being abused. After the jury had deliberated for less than 30 minutes, Jeffs was sentenced to life in prison plus 20 years. Great news indeed. Although Jeffs formally resigned as president of the FLDS Church, he did not renounce his position as prophet. This position had made him the sole individual in the church with the authority to perform marriages, and Jeffs was responsible for assigning wives to husbands. Jeffs had been responsible for assigning Sabrina to her abusive husband. Jeffs had continued the standard FLDS and Mormon fundamentalist tenet that faithful men must follow what is known as the doctrine of celestial or plural marriage in order to attain exaltation in the afterlife. Jeffs is specifically taught that a devoted church member is expected to have at least three wives in order to get into heaven, and the more wives a man has, the closer he is to heaven. So, all of this means that many in the FLDS community still regard him as the prophet and their current leader, even though he's in jail. In early 2011, Jeffs retook legal control of the denomination, and a former sheriff of Colorado City has alleged that Jeffs still runs that community behind bars. Okay, so back to last week. Last Thursday, Sabrina showed up to pick up her kids, per court order, remember? But lots of members from the community started showing up. They surrounded her van, the home, fences, and yard. They were kicking the van. They even tried to put a cow and chickens into her van. Why cows and chickens, you ask? Frankly, I have no idea, and your guess is as good as mine. Cell phone footage taken shows swarms of polygamists surrounding Sabrina's van, the woman dressed in conservative floor-length dresses in varying pastel colors. It's a very surreal scene. A Mojave County judge had ordered the sect to turn over the children at 5 p.m. on Thursday. But Sabrina says that when she got to the compound at the arranged time, her kids were nowhere to be seen. It was only at midnight that they returned, and they were quickly shepherded into their Aunt Samantha Holmes' house, where several dozen fundamentalists kept them from seeing their mother. I'm not sure if this is a paternal or maternal aunt, but I really hope it wasn't Sabrina's own sister. Sabrina had to spend the night in her van, fearing the vehicle would be torn apart if she left it unattended. When about 600 cult members surrounded her vehicle in the morning and kept her from reaching the home where her children were staying, Sabrina finally called the police to intervene on her children's behalf. Why did it take her so long to call the sheriff? Well, remember, there are allegations that Jeff still runs that entire community. Sheriff deputies had to take out a search warrant to pry the children from the house and into their mother's waiting arms. To make matters worse, the children were not so happy to leave since cult members had scared them into believing their mother was taking them to hell. Deputies escorted Sabrina and her children all the way back to their home in northern Utah and reportedly FLDS members tailed them the whole way there. Some allegedly beat the family there since they found the home completely trashed with animal feces smeared on the walls and several pieces of furniture broken when they arrived home. Nice church community, huh? 
Fearing further attacks from the FLDS community, the family is living in a safe house for the time being. Um, Defenders of Children, a nonprofit group that has been aiding Sabrina through her custody battle, said they fear for her safety and are raising money to pay for a security system and new clothes for their children. Custodial interference charges are pending against Samantha Holm, the aunt who initially wouldn't hand over Sabrina's children. So the great news is that Sabrina has her children back. Now does start the arduous ordeal of overcoming the children's brainwashed belief. Luckily, children are pliable, and with the love and support of Sabrina and her new husband and family, hopefully these children will become part of a typical American family. Here's wishing this family the best in the times ahead. This has been Marilyn, and this has been the Good News Report. Before we go, just a quick reminder that tickets are still on sale to Skeptical, the Northern California Conference on Science and Skepticism. It's hosted by the Bay Area Skeptics and the Sacramento Area Skeptics and once again will be at the Oakland Asian Cultural Center in Oakland, California. The date will be Saturday, June 3rd and we have a great lineup of speakers this year. The early bird ticket rate is only available until May 1st. But either way, this is one of the most affordable all-day science conferences you'll ever attend. Please visit our website at skepticalcon.org for tickets and other information, and I hope to see you there.